We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Away we go, episode 48 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Tuesday, April 27th, 2021. Sadly, the Wizards' winning streak is over. The eight-gamer did not become a nine-gamer. A game that was drunk or high or both at Capital One Arena on Monday night. The damn Washington Wizards! Yes, thank you, Stephen A. A 146-143 overtime loss to the San Antonio Spurs. So much to talk about with that game, but not before we discuss the latest with our Washington football team, as we now are just two days away from the first round of the 2021 NFL Draft. Did you see, by the way, what ESPN NFL Draft analyst Todd McShay said on the Pardon My Take podcast? Quote, Washington, Chicago, and New England all have interest in Davis Mills in the second round. End quote. David Mills would be the Stanford quarterback. We talked about him recently on the podcast. Uh, McShay, by the way, also went on to say that Washington, quote, loves, end quote, the idea of what Mills could develop into. The intrigue continues with Washington and the quarterbacks, and Washington drafting a quarterback in, if not the first round, then maybe the second round. Is this legit? Is this a bunch of fake news? Because here's the deal. If you're keeping track of this, as I am, Washington, over the last few weeks, has been said to like or love each of the following guys. Trey Lance, Justin Fields, and now Davis Mills. That's a lot of love to be spreading around. So either Ron Rivera is in a loving mood, or this is all a smokescreen. This is some misdirection being employed by Ron Rivera. Some deception, some chicanery being employed by Don Ron. That's what I think is going on here. But we shall see. In the meantime, there was Washington football team news on Monday. The team is exercising the fifth-year option in the rookie contract 
of Deron Payne. Now, that was expected, but that also is significant. I'll talk to Ron Payne coming up shortly and also get to something that I know has many people worried, the likelihood of Washington being able to afford all of these quality front seven players as time goes on, right? Payne, John Allen, Matt Ioannidis, Tim Settle, Chase Young, Montez Sweat. How can Washington keep all these guys over the long haul? Actually, it is possible, more possible than you may think. Also on this podcast, in terms of the Washington football team, Landon Collins, word is that he is, in fact, being asked to move to linebacker, or at least a linebacker-like role. This, to me, says multiple things. I'll go through those things. And what about Julio Jones? Big news in the NFL on Monday that the Atlanta Falcons reportedly are looking to trade Julio, or at least are taking calls on Julio. Should Washington be in on Julio? I'll give you my answer. Special guest on the show, Nationals insider Jesse Doherty of the Washington Post as we try to make sense of the 8-11 and Nats and process the team's biggest problems, including Patrick Corbin's struggles and the offense being so bad so far. I also go there with Jesse, and by go there, I mean ask Jesse whether the Nats would have the chops to trade back Scherzer this summer if the team continues to be bad or even just mediocre. And we're not there yet. The season is still so young. But if that happens, Will the Nats do, as they did not do in 2018, when they did not trade at Bryce Harper, will the Nats pull the trigger on a trading away of the great Max Scherzer as he's in the final season of that seven-year contract? It's been a rough start for the Nats so far, but there are things to sort of cling to, so a lot to get into with Jesse. Also, the Orioles, the latest to beat up on the New York Yankees. Orioles capitalizing on the reeling Yankees on Monday night. What a terrible start to the Yankee season so far. Uh, how glorious has that been, by the way? But the Orioles are doing pretty well. Tremendous game for Matt Harvey on Monday night. Tremendous game for Cedric Mullins on Monday night. Mullins has been like unconscious to begin this season. So I'll talk O's later on in the podcast. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Did you see, by the way, what the television rating for the Oscars was? Oh my God, this thing may not even be on TV in a few years. According to the Hollywood Reporter, the Oscars on Sunday night drew 9.85 million viewers. That's down 58% from last year's 23.64 million viewers. And that was the all-time low previously. So you set a new low last year at 23.64 million viewers. And then on Sunday night, you were down by more than half. You were down 58% to 9.85 million viewers. That is horrendous. I mean, and I don't get it. Why don't people want to watch the Oscars? Why don't people want to watch the Hollywood elite? Why don't people want to see rich elitists honoring other rich elitists? I mean, don't you know that these people know what's best for you? I mean, geez, come on. What are you people watching if you're not watching the Oscars like that. All right, before we truly get going here, how about the deflection by our old pal Kyle Shanahan on Monday? Head coach for the San Francisco 49ers, who in case you don't know, utilize a coach-centric approach. Kyle runs football operations for the Niners. Kyle is the Ron Rivera of the 49ers. So of course, we've had all kinds of talk about what San Fran is going to do with the number three overall pick in the draft. We know that the Niners will take a quarterback. The belief had been that the pick would be Mac Jones. Now there's a lot floating out there that there is internal dissension regarding who the Niners uh, should take. Maybe that's a smokescreen, maybe not. But if in fact it's not Mac Jones and there's a lot of debate going on internally of should we go Jones? Should we go Justin Fields? Should we go Trey Lance? 
boy, is that intriguing right now, right? I mean, the draft is, again, two days away in terms of the first round. But anyway, Kyle at this pre-draft press conference on Monday got asked about the Niners' current quarterback, Jimmy Garoppolo. Remember him? Yeah. Uh, he, hey, I'm still here, guys. Okay, yeah. Uh, Jimmy G is about to get supplanted sooner rather than later. We'll see. But Garoppolo, I mean, the Niners, it doesn't speak well of him that the Niners have made this huge trade up to number three to take a quarterback, regardless of who ends up being the pick. Well, Kyle on Monday got asked, will Garoppolo still be on the 49ers on Sunday, i.e. the day after the 2020 NFL draft is concluded? Here's what Kyle said. Um, I can't guarantee that anybody in the world will be alive Sunday, so I can't guarantee who will be on our roster on Sunday. Um, so that goes for all of us. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's technically true, Kyle. I guess that's technically true. A little dark, a little disturbing, but okay. Uh, if that's how you want to play it, go ahead and play it that way. It's so funny, the parallels between the way Sean McVay talked about Jared Goff at the end of the Los Angeles Rams 2020 season and how Kyle is speaking about Garoppolo. It's just, it's like two former Washington offensive coordinators who so clearly fell out of love with their previous starting quarterbacks. And Goff obviously is now gone from the Rams, having been traded to the Detroit Lions. And Garoppolo will be gone from the Niners, if not this offseason, then certainly next offseason. All right, lots to talk about with the Washington football team. All that begins in moments. But first, something very special. All right, guys, I want to tell you about a new sponsor for the Al Galdi podcast, a great guy, Dr. Matthew Mintz, an internal medicine and primary care physician. If it has been a while since you've seen a doctor, if your wife or girlfriend or both are nagging you to get a checkup, uh, sure, you should probably go. You know this. But who wants to go to the doctor these days? We get it. It's impossible to get an appointment. You wait in the waiting room forever. You barely see the doctor who's looking at his computer most of the time. And it's impossible to get in touch with the doctor when you need to. Well, here's your solution, Dr. Matthew Mintz. Dr. Mintz is an internal medicine and primary care physician. His concierge membership practice allows for old-fashioned, personalized care in which every patient is a person, not simply a number. Dr. Mintz removes the frustration of typical doctor's offices by offering same-day, next-day appointments, longer appointment times, lab work that's done in the office, and 24-7 after-hours access. That's right. You can reach him by cell phone day or night. Dr. Mintz is board-certified in internal medicine, has been named one of Washingtonian Magazine's top docs since 2012, was recently named a top doctor by Bethesda Magazine. Unlike most other concierge practices in the area, Dr. Mintz can generate invoices for you, which you can submit to your insurance company for reimbursement, saving you money. Dr. Mintz's office is conveniently located in Bethesda in the Wildwood Medical Center. Dr. Mintz grew up in the area, is a big fan of the Washington football team. He is a daily listener to the Al Galdi podcast. Check out his website, drmintz.com, D-R-M-I-N-T-Z, Dot com. You can set up your free meet and greet. Yes, you heard that right. Free meet and greet. Or you can call his office directly. You can do so right now. 855-646-8963. That's 855-646-8963. Dr. Matthew Mintz. Make sure you tell him that Al Galdi sent you. So, in this NFL Draft Week 2021, we had some actual Washington football team news on Monday evening. We had multiple reports that Washington is exercising the fifth-year option in Deron Payne's rookie contract. The option 
worth about $8.5 million and is for the 2022 season. Duran already was under contract for the upcoming season. This will cover his 2022 season. Now, of course, Washington exercising the fifth-year option in Payne's rookie contract isn't surprising, just like Washington doing so for Jonathan Allen last offseason was not surprising. Washington took Payne with the number 13 pick in the 2018 NFL Draft out of Alabama, and he's been a good player for Washington. There's no two ways about this. We can debate whether he should have been the pick at 13. I actually wanted Washington to take Derwin James, the safety who ended up going to the Los Angeles Chargers, and James had an excellent rookie season, made all pro that season, but he's dealt with some injury issues since then, so you could very much argue Payne was, in fact, the right call. Uh, Payne has been durable for Washington. Over his first three seasons, he's played in 47 of a possible 48 regular season games. Payne has been to me, and I'm guessing to a lot of you, Washington's best run defender over his first three seasons. Now, that's not exactly saying a ton because Washington's run defense for years is really bad, did get better this past season. But if you go by one of the great stats that pro football focus tracks, run stops, Deron Payne over his first three regular seasons, so 2018 through 2020, number two among all interior defensive linemen in run stops for PFF at 86. Now, some of this is a function of opportunity because when you do something like, say, who has the most of what, you know, you're going by counting stat. Counting stats are functions of opportunity. Washington, in being bad for all of the 2019 season and for chunks of the 2018 and 2020 seasons, had quite a few games in which opposing teams ran a bunch of running plays. So you got to enter that into the equation. But, you know, just like watching the games, I think we've seen this to Ron Payne as run defenders go for Washington over these last three seasons has been the best. Like, I wouldn't say he's the best pass rushing interior defensive lineman on Washington. I actually would say Matt Ioannidis takes that honor, but when it comes to stopping the run, Deron Payne has been that guy. Also, Deron Payne played a ton for a 2020 Washington defense that was much improved. You know, it's not easy to quantify interior defensive line play. So kind of a simple way to do it is, well, how much did the guy play? And well, how did his defense do? Well, Deron Payne in the 2020 regular season was fourth on Washington in defensive snaps. He played on 84.31% of Washington's defensive snaps. And Washington's defense in the 2020 regular season was drastically improved from the dreck that we all witnessed in 2019. Take a listen to some of the defensive improvements for Washington last regular season. Total defense per football outsiders DVOA metric, 27th in the NFL in 2019, third in the NFL in 2020. Points allowed per game, 27th in the NFL in 2019, fourth in the NFL in 2020. Third down defense, 32nd, dead last in the NFL in 2019, sixth in the NFL in 2020. Opponents yards per play, 2019, 21st in the NFL, 2020, second in the NFL. Red zone defense, 2019, 24th in the NFL, 2020, fourth in the NFL. I mean, giant leaps in so many key categories for Washington's defense, 2020 versus 2019. Deron Payne played a very big role in that. And you very much could argue Deron Payne had the best of his three seasons in 2020. And here's actually something we can't quantify, his production as a pass rusher. So Washington, of course, went from a 3-4 base defense to a 4-3 base defense for the 2020 season. The whole 3-4-4-3 thing has been overrated because every team is a nickel like 70% of the time anyway. You're not in base that much anymore. But it's hard to ignore this. Deron Payne, from a pass rushing productivity standpoint, had his best season in 2020. If you go by the data on Sport Radar, 
Payne, over his first two seasons, totaled 22 pressures. Payne, last regular season, had 17 pressures. So he came close to equaling his total pressures over his first two seasons last season. And just watching the game and being a fan of the team, Deron Payne made some big plays for Washington last season. You go back to the 23-15 win over the San Francisco 49ers in Arizona, remember, in week 14, Payne in just the second quarter of that game had a fumble recovery and then a forced fumble on a second quarter, second and four for the Niners at their 31. Chase Young tackled the running back, Jeff Wilson, on a carry for a two-yard loss and forced a fumble that was recovered by Deron Payne. Washington got the ball at the Niners 26. And then later in the second quarter, one of the plays of the season, first and 10 for the Niners at their 49, Payne with a sack strip and Nick Mullins for a fumble that's recovered by Chase Young, who generates a 47-yard return for a touchdown to give Washington a 13-7 lead. Yes, the famous Chase Young fumble return for a score made possible by a forced fumble by Deron Payne. And then the following week, that 2015 loss to the Seattle Seahawks at FedEx Field in week 15. Payne, a fourth quarter interception. First and 10 for the Seahawks at the Washington 39. Montez Sweat off being in coverage, comes charging in toward Russell Wilson, makes a leaping deflection of a Wilson pass, and Payne makes the grab for the interception. So Payne was a playmaker last season in a lot of ways. Now there are knocks on Deron Payne. That is true. He's not a perfect player. Uh, his overall grade for the 2020 regular season for Pro Football Focus was just 68.2. I was surprised when I saw that for the first time. Like for comparison's sake, Tim Settle's overall grade for last regular season was better than Payne's. Uh, Payne again, 68.2. Settle was 69. Uh, Jonathan Allen's overall grade for last regular season for PFF was 80.3. Again, Payne just 68.2. So, you know, not that PFF is gospel. I always try to make it a point to say that, but it's something to go by. And if you go by that, uh, it's not that pain was, you know, lights out in the 2020 season. Also, and I mentioned this, but you do have to say this, pain was a part of a Washington defense that got carved up in that playoff loss to the Bucks. I mean, it was really disappointing to see Washington's defense get got the way it got got in that game by Tom Brady and the Bucks. And, you know, not that I expected Washington to shut down Tampa Bay in that game, but I certainly expected better than what we saw. And what we saw was not good, right? Bucks put up 31 points. Uh, Brady averages 9.53 yards per pass attempt. And Washington got run over in that game. If you add up what the two primary Bucks running backs did, Leonard Fournette and Keyshawn Vaughn, and then throw in what a couple of Bucks receivers did as ball carriers, Antonio Brown and Scotty Miller, those four guys in that game combined for 26 carries for 144 yards and a touchdown, 5.54 yards per carry. So it's not to say that Payne is perfect because he isn't. It's not to say that Washington's defense is perfect because it isn't. And there's certainly another level that this defense can get to. But Deron Payne is a nice piece. And if you don't want to say he's like an A interior defensive lineman, to me, he's a BB plus interior defensive lineman. And you can do a lot worse. And we have done a lot worse on the interior of our defensive lines over the years. One more thing off Washington exercising the fifth year option in Payne's rookie contract. And that is this. So I've heard this a lot over the last few months. And that is this worry, this hand wringing over Washington is not going to be able to afford all of these quality front seven players that the team has accumulated in recent years. As time goes on and their contracts come up, there's no way that Washington can keep all of these guys. And I understand where that's coming from. And I recognize that it's not easy to keep everyone on a good defense. And hopefully we end up looking at this defense year in and year out as being very good. But I think like people need to calm down a little bit with that. It's not impossible 
to keep all these guys moving forward. It's not going to be easy. It's going to take a lot of forward thinking and aggressive front officing. You know, you certainly can't treat these guys and handle these guys the way that Washington has handled the Brandon Sheriff situation where you start going year to year and you start franchise tagging the guy in back-to-back years and you start doing the cha-cha-cha. Exactly. Yeah, no more cha-cha-cha. Okay, no more cha-cha-cha. Once was enough with Kirk Cousins. Now we're doing it twice with Brandon Sheriff. Enough, okay? No more of that. You got to be aggressive. You got to get out in front of these guys who you want to keep on board. But take a listen to kind of where we are with each of the major defensive linemen for Washington contractually. And you'll see kind of a staggered setup here to when these guys' deals are coming up. And in the rising salary cap environment, that is the NFL. And while the cap goes down for 2021, like we keep talking about, it's only going to bounce right back up, okay, with these mega money television contracts that have been done this offseason. Remember, the NFL more than doubled It's national television money via these new deals. The NFL on March 18th announced the signing of new long-term television contracts with Amazon, CBS, ESPN, ABC, Fox, and NBC. The total package reportedly is an 11-year, $113 billion package that works out to $10.27 billion per year. The NFL, under its previous national television deals, was making about $5 billion per year. So you more than doubled what you're getting from the major national television outlets. And that doesn't even include whatever's going to come next with the DirecTV Sunday ticket package, nor does this include whatever's going to come from the windfall that's going to be legalized gambling for the NFL. So league revenues are set to fly to the moon. So too is the salary cap. So if you can start signing guys over the next few years to long-term contracts, and that's not going to be easy, but it's also not impossible, contrary to the way things seem here when it comes to the situations we've had with Kirk and now Brandon, uh, you can get guys with some cost certainty that makes it more than feasible to keep these guys under contract long-term. Jonathan Allen is under contract through this season via fifth-year option. Tim Settle is under contract through this season via his rookie contract. And then those guys are up. So that, that, those two are actually your most immediate needs here. People keep talking about Allen, and you should. But if you want to keep settled, it wouldn't be the worst idea to sign him to some sort of an extension this offseason. Deron Payne now under contract through the 2022 season. Same for Matt Ioannidis. Remember, Ioannidis signed a three-year contract extension April 2019. So those are the next two guys you're going to have to be thinking about. Montez Sweat technically under contract through 2022, but you'll exercise his fifth-year option as things seem to be now, right? I mean, uh, barring the unforeseen, you're going to be doing that. So he'll be under contract through 2023. And then Chase Young, just tack on a year to what we just talked about with Montez. Chase Young technically under contract through the 2023 season via his rookie deal, but it'll be 2024 once you exercise his fifth-year option. So it's not like all of these guys are coming up at once. Allen and Settle after 21, Payne and Ioannidis after 22, Sweat after 23, Young after 24. So there's a nice sort of staggered nature to all this to where you can work things out as guys' deals come up. And I think the better play will be, instead of, of course, waiting for the deals to come up, get the guys signed long-term prior to the deals coming up. There's no reason you can't do this. I feel like we've all been kind of emotionally scarred by the Kirk thing and now the Brandon Sheriff thing. And it just, it doesn't have to be that way. Okay. Like get out in front of these things, get guys signed who you want to keep. You know, it's not like Washington hasn't done this with players in the past. Trent Williams was signed to a big money contract extension before he ever came close to free agency. Same for Ryan Kerrigan, same for Jordan Reed, you know, same for Chris Thompson. If you want to drill that deep, like Washington has signed guys to deals who the team wants 
to end up keeping. So I do think this can happen with this front seven. And knowing what we know about, you know, Ron Rivera and the cap guy, Rob Rogers, I mean, there's certain- We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Apparently smart enough and forward-thinking enough to figure this stuff out. I mean, the sheriff thing has been a turnoff. I don't like the way the team has handled the sheriff thing, but I'd like to think that that is an outlier as opposed to a paradigm for the way Washington is going to continue to handle its major money players contractually. But good to exercise the fifth-year option on pain. Again, total no-brainer, but it does give you an opportunity to appreciate what he's been. And hopefully, like I said, he and this Washington defense as a whole can get to that next level. All right, guys, look, no one's perfect. Even the best baseball players strike out with the bases loaded. The best golfers sometimes three-putt with the tournament on the line. So if you feel like you come up short in the bedroom sometimes, it's perfectly okay. But if it's bothering you, there are options. Go to GetRoman.com slash AlGaldi now. With Roman, you can get a free online evaluation and ongoing care for ED, all from the comfort and privacy of your home. A U.S. licensed healthcare professional will work with you to find the best treatment plan. If medication is appropriate, it ships to you free with two-day shipping. The whole process is straightforward and discreet. Getting started is simple. Just go to GetRoman.com slash AlGaldi and complete an online visit. Take care of your ED without leaving home. Complete an online visit today to connect with a doctor and take care of it. Go to GetRoman.com slash AlGaldi now to get $15 off your first month. Look, there's a straightforward way to take care of your ED. GetRoman.com slash AlGaldi. Get started now to save $15 on your first month of treatment. All right, more to get to now with the Washington football team defense. So Washington football team insider John Keim of ESPN in an installment of the John Keim Report podcast that came out on Sunday said that Washington is in fact talking with Landon Collins about a position change. Yes, what has been rumored, what has been speculated on, it turns out is in fact happening, at least from a standpoint of Washington wanting it to happen. Whether it's going to happen may well be a totally different ordeal. But per time, Washington is talking with Landon about a potential move to linebacker or at least a move to big nickel linebacker. Big Nickel is essentially a safety who acts as a hybrid linebacker 
slash corner. Now, we've seen this type of thing in the NFL for a while now, right? The NFL more and more is becoming a positionless game where you have corners playing safety and safeties playing corner and linebackers playing nickel corner and receivers acting as running backs because they're carrying the football, you know, the same way like a guy like Curtis Samuel with the Carolina Panthers carried the football a lot. So this is the way that the NFL is going. I think it's a good thing, not a bad thing. But the question is, well, is Landon Collins open? to this thing, right? Like I said, there's been a lot of chatter about this already this offseason. Landon has not been in favor of this, not at least publicly, right? Landon on social media has been adamant about not moving a linebacker. But then we got what we got from Ron Rivera two Fridays ago, April 16th, a Zoom press conference. Don Ron said the following, as you may recall, about Landon having said that he isn't moving to linebacker. No, that was Landon, you know, um, again, you know, our plan for Landon is to have him here, have him compete and have him being part of what we're doing going forward. Yeah. And that was it from Don Ron a couple of Fridays ago. Quote, that was Landon. Again, our plan for Landon is to have him here and have him compete and have him be a part of what we're doing going forward. End quote. Nowhere there. Did you hear Ron say, nah, Landon's going to stay a strong safety. That's what he's here to be. Nowhere there was Ron saying, yeah, you know what, Landon has nothing to worry about. We're keeping him at strong safety moving forward. No, that was a very open-ended, very vague, very non-definitive answer from Ron Rivera. And obviously that answer was given on purpose. Look, Landon Collins is still young. 2021 season is only going to be his age 27 season, but he is, of course, very expensive. He's going into the third season of a six-year, $84 million contract with $31 million guaranteed and with an average annual value, an AAV, of $14 million. I mean, Landon Collins is one of the highest paid defensive backs in the NFL. He's getting $14 million per year. He's coming off a serious injury, right? Last season played into seven games due to a ruptured Achilles tendon that was suffered in that 25-3 win over the Dallas Cowboys at FedEx Field in Week 7. And Landon just hasn't been that good for Washington over his two seasons with the team. 2019, his first season, had an overall grade for pro football focus of 69.3, which was his worst overall grade for PFF since his 2015 rookie season. Last season, 2020, he had an overall grade of just 60, and included in that mix was a horrendous run of missed tackles. If you go by the date on Sport Radar, Landon Collins, even with playing just seven games last season, finished tied for fourth on Washington in most missed tackles in the regular season. Nine missed tackles, all of which came over Washington's first four games of the season. So it hasn't been good so far with Landon Collins. And this is clearly something that needs to be monitored. Like, what's going to happen with this guy? Because it's starting to get ugly, and it's starting to feel a whole lot like the Josh Norman situation, where a guy gets paid big money for that which he has done, not what he ends up doing with you. And after maybe a so-so first season, things really start to dip down, and eventually there's tension between the player and the coach. We saw that with Josh Norman and Jay Gruden. Remember Jay Gruden calling out Josh a couple of off-seasons ago for not living up to his contract. Ron Rivera now maybe wanting Landon to do something that Landon doesn't want to do. So no doubt, this is maybe the next big drama, big saga that we need to be following here as Washington football fans. But in the meantime, I think time confirming that Washington is trying to move Landon to linebacker or to a linebacker-like role, i.e. Big Nickel, does explain and confirm a few things. So number one, that Washington is trying to move Landon to linebacker perhaps explains why Washington hasn't done more at the linebacker position so far this offseason. It has been odd, right? Off 
Ron Rivera publicly criticizing the linebackers last season. Ron Rivera has not done much at the linebacker position so far this offseason. I mean, as things stand right now, your top three linebackers are Cole Holcomb, John Bostic, and I suppose Kalik Hudson. I mean, maybe you want to say Josh Harvey Clemens, but Harvey Clemens did not play at all last season. He opted out of last season due to the COVID-19 pandemic. It's not just that. Washington this offseason has lost one of its top linebackers from last season in terms of playing time. Kevin Pierre-Lewis, right? Very early in free agency, agreed on a contract with the Houston Texans. It sure doesn't look like Washington is bringing back Reuben Foster. He remains a free agent. And even if Washington does resign the guy, I mean, how do you ever count on the guy? You've never seen the guy play for you since you claimed him off waivers years ago at this point. Um, Washington this offseason has re-signed a linebacker, re-signed this guy, Jared Norris. But Jared Norris is much more of a special teams guy than he is someone who plays a lot on defense. And Washington did add a linebacker in free agency, this guy, David Mayo. So David Mayo, and you're going to be shocked by this, was drafted by the Carolina Panthers. Uh, They took him in the fifth round of the 2015 draft out of Texas State, played for the Panthers from 2015 through 2018, but mostly as a special teams player. So, you know, David Mayo's a guy who perhaps can come here and give you some defensive snaps. He did play quite a bit for the New York Giants in the 2019 season. I actually played in all 16 games for New York that season and actually graded out quite well for PFF when it came to run defense. Run defense grade of 90.1 for Mayo over 16 games, including 13 starts for the Giants in 2019. But I tend to think that Mayo is viewed as a depth guy, not as an answer to Washington's linebacker situation. But if, in fact, part of the plan is to move Landon Collins to linebacker or a linebacker-like role, I think that does help to explain why Washington hasn't done more at the position so far this offseason. Also, Washington trying to move Landon Collins to linebacker does confirm that Washington is counting on Cameron Curl as a starting strong safety for 2021, and that is 100% the right call. Cameron Curl has Wally pipped Landon Collins. I suggested this months ago, and it sure looks to be the case right now. You know, and maybe Landon Collins is heard from again, but not at starting strong safety. He won't be, or, or you know, he shouldn't be, certainly if Curl is healthy. Uh, Cameron Curl was really one of the great stories for Washington in the 2020 season. Like you talk about the bright spots, he might have been the brightest of the bright spots given where he came from. Washington took Curl in the seventh round of the 2020 draft out of Arkansas. He ends up becoming a staple for Washington at strong safety off the season-ending injury suffered by Landon Collins. Curl started each of Washington's final 10 games, including a 31-23 loss to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers at FedEx Field in the wildcard round. Curl finished the 2020 regular season as Pro Football Focus's highest-graded rookie safety, an overall grade of 68 And Curl, during the regular season, offered that thing that we all know by now Ron likes so much, position flex. Curl, per PFF, last regular season, played at least 150 snaps at each of three spots, box safety, free safety, and slot corner. Again, positionless football. Curl brings that to the table. And he was a playmaker last season, too. Three interceptions, including a big pick in the 2014 win at the Philadelphia Eagles on Sunday Night Football in Week 17 to clinch the NFC East. It was a first quarter interception of a Jalen Hurts pass intended for Zach Ertz. And Curl also had a pick six late last season, the 23-15 win over the San Francisco 49ers in Arizona in week 14. Curl a 76-yard pick six on the final defensive snap of the third quarter, picking off a pass from Nick Mullins. Third thing that Washington moving Landon Collins to linebacker, or at least attempting to move Landon Collins to linebacker, tells us is this. So 
with Curl not being moved to free safety, that's a sign that Washington may, in fact, be happy with a free safety plan for 2021 of DeShazer Everett and Jeremy Reeves. One of the theories that had been out there was, well, landing Collins healthy, maybe you just put him back at strong and then move Cameron Curl to free. Doesn't look like that's a plan. Keep Cameron Curl at strong and stick with Everett and Reeves at free. Now, Everett and Reeves, do their presences preclude Washington from taking a safety in the upcoming draft? Uh, Hopefully not, okay? You draft the best player available. The board shall be your guide. One of the names that's come up for Washington at 19 on Thursday night is the TCU safety, Trevon Merrick. I would not have a problem with that. So I'm not here to say that like it's Everett and Reeves and that's it. There's no more of a conversation at free safety. No, there should be a conversation. But the cupboard is not barren for Washington at free safety, as has been the case so many times since Sean Taylor died in November 2007. The black hole that has been free safety, especially for Washington since Sean passed, really has been something else. I mean, think about all of the failed free safeties for Washington since Sean died, right? Troy Apke and Monte Nicholson and ha-ha Clinton Dix, anyone? Ha-ha! <laughs> yes, ha-ha. The joke was on us. You know, Ryan Clark in his second go-round with Washington. Total fail. Bakari Rambo, remember him as a free safety. Ashimago Atagwe, one of Jim Hazlitt's favorites, was a failed free safety for Washington. On and on we can go. Well, DeShazer Everett, I mean, Cameron Curl was a great story last season. So too was DeShazer Everett. He's going into his age 29 season. Last regular season, he plays in 11 games with six starts for Washington. It was Everett who supplanted Apke as a starting free safety. Apke started each of Washington's first five games at free safety. Things didn't go so well. DeShazer ends up becoming the starter at free safety, beginning with that 2019 loss at the New York Giants in week six. Everett starts each of the next four games, then misses two straight games due to an ankle injury, then starts the next two games, and then gets put on the reserve slash injured list December 17th due to a chest injury that was suffered in that win over the 49ers. But Everett looked good, I thought, at free safety. He was a heavy hitter. You know, Washington's defense really stabilized, really calmed down, got away from giving up the big play with Everett on that back end. Now, some of this, a good chunk of this, had to do with the schedule uh, softening with Washington playing this parade of bad quarterbacks and some inept offensive line. So all that's true. I'm not here to tell you that DeShazer Everett was just this total cure-all for whatever ailed Washington as last season went on. But he was an upgrade, no doubt, over Apke at free safety. And Everett is just an amazing story. Undrafted free agent out of Texas A&M with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, May 2015. Washington signed him on August 1st, 2015. Washington has waived him. Washington has practice squatted him. Washington has changed his position. The team moved him from corner to safety prior to the 2016 season. And all along, DeShazer has survived. He's been with Washington the last six years, 2015 through 2020. He's been a very valuable special teams player. He was, in fact, the team's special teams player of the year for the 2017 season. And he keeps finding employment. The coaching staffs change. The defensive coordinators change. But DeShazer Everett has been a staple. He's actually one of the longest tenured players on the Washington football team. The team extended him in March 2018. But Everett got hurt twice last year, gets put on IR. And so Jeremy Reeves becomes the man at free safety. Reeves is going into his age 25 season. Reeves last season started each of Washington's last three regular season games and then the playoff loss to the Bucs. And how about this when it comes to Reeves? I still can't get over this. Reeves in the regular season, albeit in a limited sample size, registered an overall grade for pro football focus of 84.1. 
That is the highest single season overall grade for a Washington safety since Sean Taylor's 84.9 in 2007. If you go by PFF, Jeremy Reeves, and again, a limited sample, gave Washington the best safety play last season that Washington had had since Sean's final season of 2007. That really is something. But Jeremy Reeves like instantly became a staple on the back end. That NFC East clinching win at the Eagles in week 17, Jeremy Reeves played on a hundred percent of Washington's defensive snaps in that game, actually had an interception. Uh, the first offensive drive for the Eagles with Nate Sudfeld in the game as the Eagles uh, went into tank mode in that second half. Uh, Reeves, a fourth quarter, third and six interception of a deep pass by Sudfeld. And then, if you remember, in the playoff loss to Tampa Bay, Reeves blocked Ryan Suckup's extra point attempt that followed Tom Brady's first quarter 36-yard touchdown bomb to Antonio Brown. Reeves, like Everett, like Curl, a great story. Promoted from the practice squad to the active roster last October 27th as the corresponding roster move to Washington, putting Landon Collins on IR. And of course, there's more to Reeves than just that. Ron Rivera chose to promote Jeremy Reeves from the practice squad as opposed to signing the former Carolina Panthers safety, Eric Reed, who was a free agent. Remember, it also came out on October 27th that Washington had offered Reed a practice squad spot, but not a spot on the 53-man roster, and Reed declined the practice squad spot with Washington. Reed said to the Associated Press, quote, I just don't think playing on the practice squad is reflective or indicative of my career, end quote. Uh, hey, more power to him, but nobody else has signed him since that happened. And if Reed had just signed to the Washington practice squad, there's a really good chance he would have ended up being on Washington's active roster, I think. But anyway, that was Eric Reed's decision. I think Washington made the right decision in going with the younger player in Jeremy Reeves, the guy with more upside in Jeremy Reeves. And how about this from Reeves? This was Reeves in January in his exit Zoom press conference discussing Ron having gone with Reeves over Reed and how that made Reeves feel. Awesome, man. Again, for a head coach to put faith in a guy that was a practice squad guy and um, to give him just an opportunity, I'll run through a big wall for coach. You know, I'll give coach everything I got because he gave me an opportunity and he didn't have to do that. He had a guy that he knew had played in the system that he was comfortable with and he went with me. And so, like I said, I'll give everything up for him, man. I mean, I'm I'm super thankful. I'm super grateful for every uh, opportunity that was given to me this year, man, because it didn't have to be like that. And so, like, I tried to play balls to the wall for the man. Yeah, and Reeves rewarded Ron for giving Reeves the opportunity. Like, this isn't a charity situation, okay? You don't just give people chances when their turn comes up. Like, you give people chances because you believe those people can deliver. And Jeremy Reeves ended up delivering. And what a story Jeremy Reeves is. He entered the NFL as an undrafted free agent at a South Alabama with the Philadelphia Eagles in April 2018. Washington signed him to its practice squad in September of 18, promoted him to the active roster December of 18. Reeves was waived by Washington and it's cut down to 53 for each of the next two seasons, 2019 and 2020. So yes, Ron cut Reeves going into last regular season, but Reeves was signed back to the practice squad to begin each of the last two years, 2019 and 2020, and obviously worked his way from the practice squad to the active roster once Landon Collins got put on IR and Reeves ended up being Washington's starting free safety over the last month of the season for Washington. And again, it's incredible. Highest overall grade for a Washington safety since Sean Taylor's 
in 2007. I mean, I'm not here to tell you Reeves is as good as Taylor or Reeves is even the guy who should be starting at free safety this upcoming season. Like, it may well be DeShays or Everett. Or like I said, maybe Washington ends up drafting someone like the TCU kid, Travon Merrick. But just the idea that you got what you got out of Jeremy Reeves, I think says so much. So Landon Collins, we shall see. Does he comply? You know, many years ago, Jim Zorn said when Vinny Serrato put the bingo caller as the offensive consultant, Sherm Lewis. Remember that? Jim Zorn famously said, I will comply. Uh, will Landon Collins comply with the Ron Rivera request, or maybe it's mandates, maybe it's order, to change positions to linebacker or to a linebacker-like role? Again, big nickel. We'll see. I think it very much could be in Landon's best interest. I think it's certainly in Washington's best interest because in Curl and Everett and Reeves, you got guys who can play. So Thursday night is, of course, the start of the 2021 NFL Draft. It is 10 years now since the 2011 NFL Draft, the first round for which included Washington drafting the all-time leader in regular season sacks for the franchise and Ryan Kerrigan. But also famously in that 2011 NFL Draft, was a massive trade-up for a non-quarterback. When we have all these discussions about, you know, Washington, can it, should it, will it move up from 19 to, say, 4 to take Trey Lance or Justin Fields or maybe Mac Jones, you know, that kind of a thing, it's always, well, you wouldn't do that for a non-quarterback. When the San Francisco 49ers pulled off that trade a few weeks ago to get up to the number three overall pick, everyone knew right away it was for a quarterback. Now, which quarterback is becoming awfully interesting you know, there's either a major divide within the 49ers right now about who to take, or it's all a big smokescreen, and one guy has been the guy all along. But whatever the case may be, you don't give up a bunch of picks to take a non-quarterback unless you are the Atlanta Falcons of 10 years ago. The Falcons traded up from number 27 to number 6 in the 2011 draft to take receiver Julio Jones out of Alabama. The trade was with the Cleveland Browns. The Falcons dealt five draft picks to the Browns for that number six overall pick. The five picks sent from the Falcons to the Browns were first, second, and fourth round selections in 2011, plus first and fourth round selections in 2012. And the truth is, the trade has ended up working out for Atlanta. Julio Jones is going to be a pro football Hall of Famer. He has had a Hall of Fame caliber career, but multiple reports came out on Monday that the Falcons just might be trading Julio Jones. Uh, NFL insider Peter King of NBC Sports in his Football Morning in America column that came out wrote, quote, I can't predict any bombshells, but a few things would not surprise me. Most notably, the Falcons putting the framework of a trade together for star wideout Julio Jones and making the trade effective June 2nd. That way, Atlanta could split Jones's cap charge between 2021 and 2022 instead of getting bashed with it all this year. So if such a trade happens, I expect it could involve a future pick or picks, nothing this year, parentheses, a future second round pick as compensation seems fair to me. Because such a trade wouldn't be official till June, no picks in this draft could be involved. As for the interested team or teams, I would guess Las Vegas. John Gruden couldn't resist Antonio Brown, and I doubt he could resist Julio Jones. New England, too, and a couple of teams with clear receiver needs, Tennessee and Baltimore, end quote. Also, this from NFL insider Ian Rappaport of NFL Network and NFL.com on Monday. He reported that the Falcons have been receiving trade calls on Julio Jones. And of course, when you hear something like that, it is more than fair to say that if the Falcons are receiving trade calls on Julio Jones, the Falcons have been telling people 
that the Falcons are interested in trading Julio Jones. So yeah, Julio Jones is out there to be had. Uh, whether he ends up being dealt, tough to say. But the Falcons, in a lot of ways, need to trade Julio Jones because the Falcons are up against it when it comes to their salary cap situation. And this is part of why Peter outlined that whole deal of if you're going to trade Julio, you got to do it post June 1. Falcons are in a terrible salary cap situation, actually need to create room just to sign their 2021 draft picks. But the Falcons do need to do a post June 1 trade of Jones because otherwise the team will take a $23.25 million hit in dead cap money in 2021. A post June 1 trade of Jones would allow the Falcons to take $7.75 million in dead cap money in 2021 and $15.5 million in dead cap money in 2022. The advantage of doing the post June 1 thing is you can spread out the cap charge over two years as opposed to if you do it pre-June 1, you got to swallow the whole matzo ball in the coming season. So Julio Jones has been great. I think everyone listening realizes that. The extent to which he's been great is actually maybe a little underrated. Uh, Jones, over a six-season stretch, 2014 through 2019, never had fewer than 1,394 receiving yards in a season. That's pretty ridiculous. Uh, Jones, over nine games in the 2020 season, a career-best catch percentage. That's receptions divided by targets of 75. Also had a yards per catch of 15.1, his best yards per catch in three seasons. I would just say this when it comes to the potential for our team, the Washington football team, trading for Julio Jones. And we go through this basically anytime any major name comes up in terms of this guy is there to be had for trade. Ooh, should Washington be in on this guy? I would actually be open to Washington trading for Jones, but only if the following criteria was met. And I'm going to be very strict about these three things. And I'm not confident that all three things will be met. So I tend to think that this is kind of a non-starter, Julio Jones to Washington. But just for entertainment purposes here, here's what my thinking would be if I'm Ron Rivera, Martin Mayhew, and Marty Herney. So number one, the trade compensation for Julio Jones must include neither a first round pick nor a second round pick. And that right there might be the deal breaker because I think I'm probably going to have to give up one of those two things to get Julio Jones. No way am I doing a first round pick. And I'm really not interested in doing a second round pick for Julio Jones. If you can somehow finagle Julio for like a three and something else or someone, uh, okay, maybe, maybe. But I'm not doing a one and I really don't want to do a two. And don't tell me the thing of, oh, Washington always blows it with its second round picks. Yeah, the previous regimes did. Let's see what this regime does. And just because you have blown it with second round picks, doesn't mean that like that's just the way it goes with second round picks. You need to hit on your second round picks. Second round picks should be starters over multiple seasons. The fact that Washington has been horrendous with its second round picks over the last decade plus, that's not an indictment of second round picks. That's an indictment of Washington, okay? That's got to get better. Washington has got to become far more proficient with its second round picks, but that's not an excuse to like no longer do anything with second round picks, okay? But that's where I would start. Trade compensation for Julio must include neither a first nor a second. Number two, you got to be certain that Julio Jones isn't going to pitch a fit over his contract. So one of the things that makes me open to this is that Julio Jones actually has very reasonable base salaries and for three more seasons. So you're not getting a guy who's about to become a free agent. Julio Jones is under contract 2021 through 2023. And here are his base salaries for the three seasons left on his deal. 2021, $15.3 million. Okay. But 2022, $11.513 million. 2023, $11.513 million. That's quite nice 
with the salary cap set to skyrocket, that Julio Jones' base salaries for the next two seasons beyond this coming season is $11.513 million. That is a really nice bargain. Even if he's not as great as he once was, if he can just be like, I don't know, 85% of his best self or 80% of his best self, that's a pretty good deal. $11.513 million base salary for Julio Jones in 2022 and 2023. And then the third item that must be met in terms of me running the Washington football team, even being open to Julio Jones being traded to my team is you got to feel comfortable with Julio Jones medically. So he's going into his age 32 season. He only played in nine games last season for the Falcons due to a lingering hamstring injury. We know that that's like sounds sirens when it comes to receivers, right? The hamstrings. And especially as this guy has gotten older and he's accumulated a lot of NFL mileage, is the body breaking down or was last season a mere blip on the radar? Because the truth is Julio Jones has been rather durable in his career. His previous six seasons, 2014 through 2019, he played in 92 of a possible 96 regular season games. And you combine that durability with a reputation of the guy's a good dude. Like I haven't seen much, if anything, in the way of like Julio Jones being a bad guy or a bad teammate or anything like that. I I think you answer the call or you make the call just to see what it would take to trade for Julio Jones. But I'm not going to bend over backwards to make a deal like this happen. I mean, by and large, I'm not interested in giving up assets for guys in their 30s who aren't cheap. And Julio Jones is past the age of 30. He isn't cheap. I mean, it's reasonable, the contract terms that are remaining, but it's not like you're getting him on a rookie contract or anything like that. And when it comes to receiver, I mean, is Washington set? No, I can't say that. But I think Washington has a lot of promise at receiver. Terry McLaurin, Curtis Samuel, Adam Humphreys, Cam Sims. It's not nothing, okay? There's a lot with which to work. And as I keep coming back to, if the quarterback play is better in 2021, then the view of these receivers is going to be a whole lot different. And so if you get better quarterback play, and it would be hard for the quarterback play this upcoming season for Washington to be worse than what we saw last season, then I don't think the receiving core is going to be looked at as being nearly the problem that people at various points looked at it as uh, last season and really over the last few seasons. Remember this too, you got a whole lot in the way of wild cards at receiver for Washington in 2021. Kelvin Harmon coming off missing all of the 2020 season due to the torn right ACL and torn right LCL that he suffered in the 2020 offseason. What might he be able to provide this upcoming season? Antonio Gandy-Golden, the intriguing fourth round pick in the 2020 draft out of Liberty. His rookie season, largely a lost season, mostly due to injury. But might AGG deliver on the preseason hype that he enjoyed last season? You know, Steven Sims technically is still on Washington. I mean, everyone's down on Steven Sims. He did not have a good 2020 at all. And the signing of Adam Humphrey seems to be a flashing neon sign that Steven Sims' roster spot is in jeopardy. But in theory, Steven Sims could bounce back in 2021. Washington also signed another receiver this offseason, this guy DeAndre Carter, who's more of a return man than a receiver, but the position that he's listed as playing is receiver. He's a smaller guy. He's listed as being 5'8", buck 90, but he can run. Uh, In March 2015, DeAndre Carter at the Sacramento State Pro Day ran a 4.44 40-yard dash. So you have some things to work with at receiver. I'm not desperate if I'm Washington to trade for Julio Jones. Make the call, receive the call, always do your due diligence, always see what it would cost. And like I said, if the three items that I listed are met, 
Trade compensation includes neither a first nor a second round pick. Jones isn't going to pitch a fit over his contract and you feel comfortable with the medicals, then yeah, I'm, I'm willing to try to work out something to get Julio Jones with Washington. But otherwise, I'm just fine. There's no need to be desperate. There's no need to make some panic move. There's no need to sacrifice the long term for the short term. This has never been about building for just 2021. This has been about building for 2021 and beyond. And everything that Washington has done this offseason has spoken to that. And nothing else that Washington does this offseason should deviate from that. Well, nothing lasts forever, not even streaks for our Wizards. The winning streak is over, a 146-143 overtime loss to the San Antonio Spurs at Capital One Arena on Monday night. A game that was cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs and a game that snapped the Wizards' eight-game winning streak, the team's longest winning streak in almost 20 years, not since December 2001, had a Wizards team won at least eight consecutive games. It was in December 2001 when Michael Jordan was playing for the Wizards that the Wizards matched the longest winning streak in Wizards' last Bullets history. Nine games. That's it. That's the franchise record for consecutive victories. A mere nine. Wizards were a win away from tying that. And then came what went down on Monday night at Capital One Arena. A rare Wizards loss to a Western Conference team this season. Wizards now 17 and 11 against the West this year as compared to just 10 and 23 against Eastern Conference teams. Now also on Monday night, the Toronto Raptors ripped the Cleveland Cavaliers 112-96. The Chicago Bulls won at the Miami Heat 110-102. So here's where we stand when it comes to the play-in standings in the Eastern Conference. Remember, there's a play-in tournament between the regular season and the postseason in each conference for this season. The play-in tournament is going to take place for seeds 7 through 10 in each conference. So the Wizards are 27 and 34. They are 10th in the East, game and a half behind the Indiana Pacers for ninth, three games behind the Charlotte Hornets for eighth, and four and a half games behind the Miami Heat for seventh. Wizards are two games ahead of both the Chicago Bulls and Toronto Raptors for 10th in the East. But I mentioned the game being cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. I don't even know if that captures what went down on Monday night. And if you watched the game or if you were at the game, because fans now are allowed to attend Wizards games at Capital One Arena. Thank you, Emperor Spouser. Uh, you saw something really just incredible and certainly not something that you see often in, in a lot of different ways. So first of all, the game was about as back and forth as an NBA game can be. Neither team ever led by more than nine points. The game featured 31 lead changes and 20 ties. Each team, very bizarrely, was bad on threes, but great on twos. The Wizards went just six of 20 on threes, but 52 of 89 on twos. The Spurs went just six of 17 on threes, but 49 of 86 on twos. Also, Neither team was turning the ball over, although Russell Westbrook had two really bad turnovers in overtime. But Wizards had 26 assists versus eight turnovers. The Spurs had 27 assists versus six turnovers. So just a very strange game in a lot of ways, but it was entertaining. I mean, that is true. You can't dispute that. The game was all over the place in terms of what you ended up seeing. And the Wizards, they could have pulled this off but unfortunately did not. So the Wizards were missing still a number of key players. Uh, Rui Hachimura was back, but Robin Lopez was out on Monday night. He did not play due to a left ankle sprain. Wizards continue to be without both Denny Abdia and Thomas Bryant. Hachimura was back from a four-game absence caused by left knee soreness. 13 points, 5-7 shooting, 
and six rebounds in 31 minutes, 41 seconds as a starter. Now, also for Monday night was Russell Westbrook questionable with a right ankle sprain. He did end up playing and he played a ton, 42 minutes, 21 seconds. So I think you have to factor this into when you evaluate Westbrook's performance. His shooting was brutal on Monday night, okay? Now, I know he doesn't need to be injured to struggle from a shooting standpoint, but Westbrook 0 for 3 on threes, 9 for 23 on twos, and he committed six turnovers, but he did have another triple-double, extended his single season and career franchise records with his 29th triple-double, 22 points, 14 assists, 13 rebounds. Westbrook now six triple-doubles away from Oscar Robertson's NBA record for career regular season triple-doubles of 181. Westbrook now at 175. And Westbrook was a monster in the fourth quarter, okay? Fourth quarter, each team scores 38 points. Westbrook, 14 points on 5-9 shooting and 4 assists versus no turnover. So you got to give Westbrook his props for that. He was great over those final 12 minutes of regulation. But then in overtime, different story. No points, 0 of 2 shooting, and he had two bad pass turnovers uh, versus having no assists. Bradley Beal on Monday night. So speaking of like the game being weird, how about Beal's night? So first of all, 45 points. I mean, Beal was awesome as a scorer on Monday night. 45 points in just 41 minutes, 36 seconds as a starter. But he finishes with one of the weirder box score lines that you'll ever see. So he was, again, and this happened so much with Beal this year, not very good on threes, but excellent on twos. 0 for 3 on threes, 20 for 34 on twos was Beal on Monday night. But he basically did nothing beyond the 45 points. You know, Beal is a guy who doesn't just score. He gives you rebounds. He gives you assists. He can give you steals. Beal on Monday night, how about this? 45 points, yes, but three rebounds, one assist versus no turnovers, no steals, no blocks. And I'm not really complaining in saying that because you're going to have games like that. But it was just funny to see that because you're not used to seeing that from Bradley Beal. He's not just like a pure scorer and nothing else. He does other things, but he really wasn't doing those other things for whatever reason on Monday night. But Beal, a huge game-tying driving layup with 15.8 seconds left in the fourth quarter to tie the game at 133. Beal in overtime, eight points on four of eight shooting, but he did have a technical foul in overtime. And, you know, every little thing in an overtime period matters. Westbrook, the two bad pass turnovers. Beal, the technical foul. Wizards do end up losing the game. But another positive from Monday night, uh, at least offensively, was Alex Len. So Alex Len has been starting a bunch for the Wizards here. In fact, he started for a 24th consecutive game on Monday night. The thing with Len, though, and we've talked about this on the podcast, he'll start, but he won't play much. Well, he actually played a decent amount, at least by his standards on Monday night, in part because, again, Robin Lopez didn't play due to injury. Len played for 23 minutes, 21 seconds, and he was a force. I mean, Len at times was dominant out there. 17 points on eight of nine shooting and 10 rebounds. I mentioned each team being really good on twos. One of the other quirky things was the Wizards dominated the paint on Monday night. Even with both teams doing well on twos, the Wizards inside had their way. 86 points in the paint for the Wizards on Monday night. 86 of the Wizards' 143 points came in the paint. The Spurs had 60 paint points, but the Wizards end up outscoring the Spurs in the paint by 26 points. Alex Len was a big part of that. Some vicious dunks in the game. Was fun to see this because you haven't seen it a ton with Len since he came to the Wizards, even though, like I said, he does continue to start. Also, the Wizards bench again contributed a lot in this game on Monday night. Now, Daniel Gafford actually did not have a great game, but other Wizards reserves delivered. Uh, Davis Bertans, three of five on threes, 13 points, four rebounds, in 34-25 off the bench. I mean, we're used to Bertans doing a lot more than that. We saw it certainly last year, but still three of five on threes. Uh, Anthony Gill 
who's gotten significant run from Scott Brooks lately. Gill, 13 points, 6 of 7 shooting, 3 rebounds, and just 13.55 off the bench. And Ish Smith, man, this is something that's not getting a lot of attention. The production that Ish Smith has provided for the Wizards during this stretch of still 10 wins in 12 games. Ish on Monday night, 8 assists versus no turnovers to go with 6 points on 3 of 7 shooting in 25.57 off the bench. There's an element to the Wizards where you just kind of have to laugh sometimes, okay? Like, you can't take their season too seriously, because Monday night, if you do take the season seriously, does drive you bonkers. Like, this was definitely a winnable game. This was a game against a Spurs team that is good, but not great. Spurs with the win improved to 31 and 29 on the season. And again, I mean, the game was like up and down, back and forth. It was entertaining. I don't know that you say it was horrendous defense necessarily because there are a lot of possessions in the game. So when you have a lot of possessions and when you play at a fast pace, you're going to get a lot of points. Like I said, the Spurs were not good from beyond the arc. But the Spurs did shoot well on their twos, barely had any turnovers, and the Wizards end up losing the game. And so the Wizards fall to seven games below 500 at 27 and 34, but still very much in the mix when it comes to the play-in tournament in the Eastern Conference. Now, next up for the Wizards is another game against a Western Conference team, the Los Angeles Lakers. Yes, your reigning defending NBA champion Lakers. Wiz Lakers Wednesday night at 7.30. The Lakers did win on Monday night, 114-103 at the Orlando Magic. But you know, the Lakers are not having a great season. They're not a bad team, but they are just fifth in the West at 36 and 25. And uh, well, hopefully LeBron James can give us uh, more of his thoughts on policing when he's in town on Wednesday night. LeBron James. Yes, thank you very much. Yeah, I look forward to that. LeBron on policing in this country because his thoughts have just been so brilliant here uh, lately. But anyway, uh, Wizards have made the season interesting. There's no doubt about that. And going back to Westbrook real quick, did you see what came out on Monday night? The Houston Rockets announcing that John Wall likely to miss the remainder of the season due to a right hamstring strain. So if you've been wondering, well, Westbrook for Wall, Wall for Westbrook, did the Wizards win or lose that trade? You can't forget the Wizards attached a protected first round pick to Wall to get Westbrook. So that can never be disregarded. But in terms of each guy this season, Westbrook has been the better player. And now you say with certainty, Westbrook has been the healthier player as John Wall's recent history of lower body injuries continues. Right hamstring strain. Yes, the Rockets are awful this year. So if the Rockets are more of a player player in the West, maybe Wall tries to gut it through the hamstring strain. I'll grant you that. But Houston is atrocious. 15 and 46 on the season. Worst record in the NBA. John Wall done for the season, at least right now in the moment. You can say with some confidence, the Wizards got the better of the trade, even with the attached first round pick uh, with Wall. Remember, it is a protected first round pick. Westbrook is not perfect, but he's been a force for the Wizards as they've gotten their season on track, and he deserves a lot of credit for that. The damn Washington Wizards. Yes, that team, our team. No game for the Nationals on Monday. They begin a two-game series against the Toronto Blue Jays in Dunedin, Florida on Tuesday night at 7.07. Max Scherzer versus Trent Thornton. If you are confused on how to feel about the Nationals so far, you're not alone. On the one hand, the team is just 8-11, and has been shut out five times in 19 games, has a run differential of minus 24, and has all kinds of questions. But on the other hand, the Nats, despite a number of things having worked against them, are 8-11 and in a National League East that has been very underwhelming so far and have had some pleasant surprises in Joe Ross, Eric Fetty, and the bullpen. Very pleased to welcome 
to the Al Galdi podcast right now. And that's insider Jesse Doherty of the Washington Post. Hey, Jesse, how are you? Good, man. How are you? Doing well. Appreciate you coming on very much. So what is the right way of feeling about the Nats so far? Disappointed? Concerned? Perhaps encouraged? There's a lot to take in with this team through 19 games, as you know. Yeah, there is. There is. I think, you know, I, I guess my best piece of advice, and it's, it's a hard one, is to maybe not feel any way. You know, it's like if, if you're if you're searching for an answer, whether it be encouraged, discouraged, happy, sad, you know, uh, confident, uh, you know, whatever it is, I'm not sure it exists yet. I think, you know, part of that is the fact that the team has been so, you know, sort of discombobulated in a sense. First, you, you know, you lose 11 total guys from the coronavirus outbreak. Now you're without Steven Strasburg and John Lester in your rotation, Juan Soto in the lineup, Wander Swearer and Will Harris in the bullpen. It's really hard to gauge, but at the same time, this team is, is sort of overachieved in a sense, you know, three and two without Soto and, uh, and has kind of, you know, been able to stay afloat. So, uh, I'm, I'm confused as well. I, I think that there's some good signs. There's some also some, some not so good signs, um, that sort of would, would make you not confident if, if you are someone who sort of grips onto that sort of, you know, marginal success without a lot of the key players. Some guys who are supposed to be key players have not performed as such so far. So I think there's a good mix and, and it kind of, kind of comes out to be neutral. What to you is the most concerning thing about the Nats so far? Uh, I mean, I, I guess health is number one. I think if Steven Strasburg can't get right and be on the mound consistently, that's a that's a major issue. And then Patrick Corbin, not a health issue, but not really being himself. I, I think that you know the, the offense is struggling to score runs, and that's always going to be a problem if you can't do that. But if the team is still built around rotation, and if it doesn't go, the team won't go ultimately. So. My biggest concern is a mix of Strasburg and Corbin. Strasburg being health-related with his shoulder inflammation, Corbin being more performance-related. Um, his start on, on Sunday for me was felt more like a bad start you'd have if you were just in the midst of a season. It didn't feel like a doomsday start. It didn't seem to me like those first two of the season that really signaled that he didn't have it at all. It was somewhere in the middle between good and bad, which happens. You know, that's that's okay. You can give up four runs in four innings. That's that's a that's a Thing that's going to you know, occur over the course of a season, but uh, those two definitely are the top of my list. And then, and then next on that would be Josh Bell and Kyle Schwarber. But I think they need a bit more time to get their uh, yeah timing down before we sort of dive uh, too too deep into that. Yeah, and I want I want to get to Bell and Schwarber with you momentarily. With Corbin, I mean, obviously it's not just this season in which he's been bad in three or four starts. It was a 2020 season, albeit truncated, in which he was really bad. What, what do you think is going on here with Corbin? I mean, he, he feels like he's too young to be, you know, in the midst of a conversation of like, has he lost it or is he shot? At the same time, the, the sample size is growing larger and larger of bad outings for this guy. What do you think the truth is about Patrick Corbin? Yeah, it's it's interesting because I think, you know, it's these are kind of like hindsight discussions. But when when we when, when they when the Nationals signed Patrick Corbin, the discussion and I say we meaning like the discussion we sort of were having as a media or it was that were they betting too high on what was kind of a one good season in 2018. And I think their, their argument was, you know, we look at the peripheral stats from previous seasons. It's not necessarily just, you know, ERA, whatever, you know, you have to look deeper and, and we determined that at his age, he's going to age well. And, and, you know, without, you know, needing to have an overpowered fastball and the way his slider is, they thought he would be, you know, a good investment over six years, but there's a chance that, that initial chatter being that, you know, was it, you know, too risky or was, were you taking some inherent risk in hoping 
this guy was what he showed in 2018, not what he had showed in previous years, it, there's a chance that, that that just was predictive in him just not being the pitcher that they thought he was, right? Like, it doesn't mean he's, you know, burned out, which he could be. It doesn't mean he's done, which, you know, I guess he could be. But it may just mean that, that one good start, two bad ones. Three good starts, two bad ones. Four good starts, four bad ones. Whatever it is, like, that might be Patrick Corbin. And that might just mean that that initial investment of $140 million obviously looks really good in a World Series year, but may not be so over the course of six years. Yeah, I think that's a really smart way of looking at it. Speaking of investments, I mean, the Strasburg thing, there's, of course, the immediacy of, like, this season and what does his health mean for your rotation. But then there's kind of the macro outlook of, you gave this guy a seven-year, $245 million contract. You re-signed him, yes, off a magnificent 2019, including, of course, World Series MVP that postseason. But here's a guy, right, already in his 30s, substantial injury history, and you gave that guy seven years, $245 million. Like, there was a definite risk when you did that. And it's early in the contract, but, you know, he makes two starts last year. He's made just two starts so far this year. One of them was a complete disaster. The history of these mega money deals for pitchers, as we all know, isn't very good. Like, Max Scherzer is the outlier, not the norm. To the Nats fan who's saying, oh my God, you know, did the Nats blow it with this resigning of Strasburg? Would you say calm down or would you say, you know what, you do have some right to be worried here? I think that you do have some right to be worried for sure. I, I think that you also had a right to be worried the day it was signed. So independently of like the fact that it's gone poorly so far, I don't think you would have been out of your, you wouldn't have been crazy to say, oh man, like you said, starting pitcher, seven, seven more years, like that's a lot, right? Like I, like that's a, Max Scherzer makes that deal look really good. Um, a lot of guys don't. You're spot on with that. And I think that we're obviously seeing sort of what would what could be described as the worst case scenario. It's we're you know one shortened season in, and now one month into the next season, he's pitched 15 total innings. I mean that you know you you actually hope he does that in two starts for you, right? When you give him you know 35 a year, you're hoping for an eight inning start and a seven inning start, and that's 15 innings right there. It's been 15 innings total. Which is, which is concerning. And, um, I think that it's obviously going to be important to, to assess it over the life of the contract. I think anytime you pay a pitcher for seven years, six years, five years even, you're, you're smart enough to know that it's not going to be a seven spotless season. You're going to have an injury in there. Probably going to have two with most guys, you know, Max Scherzer, you know, notwithstanding. Um, and you might even have some poor performance as well. I mean, I think that's to, to, to assume it's going to be seven good years. Uh, is, is tough, but that would have to mean that this is all being front loaded, right? And the next five are really good to sort of balance that out. As the guy gets older, that gets harder to accomplish. So I think there is a lot of. Talking with Nats insider Jesse Doherty of the Washington Post. So with that Nats offense, obviously no Juan Soto right now with him on the 10 day injured list, but it's not like the offense was thriving when he was healthy. I mean, he can only do so much. Josh Bell and Kyle Schwarber, like we said, have been struggling. The Nats as a team are not hitting for like any power. I mean, haven't hit a home run since last Tuesday night. Do you believe that this Nats team has it in itself to be a good offensive team or is the offense going to be a problem throughout this season? Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, last year we were so intent on sort of labeling that as a bad offense. And I think for most of the season it it was, and, and mostly it just looked bad. Like it wasn't fun to watch. But if you looked up at the end of the season, the Nationals were top 10 in OPS and on-base percentage, team OPS and on-base percentage, which are the two of the better predictors of you know, team offense and some success. So um, for me, like, that group obviously got better, right? Like, 
Alan Kendrick was hurt last year. He turned into, you know, Josh Bell. And, and uh, Israel Cabrera, if you're thinking of Eric Finch, you're thinking of, like, that 5-6 hitter turns into Kyle Schwab. Like, the Nationals gave themselves chances to improve last year on an offense that, through 60 games, wasn't maybe as bad as it was characterized as. Uh, but so far, we have not seen that actually, you know, come to fruition, right? I mean, I think, you know, there's some factors to that. One of the big ones is that Soto has been out for five games, and that's five of your 19, so that's significant. But also it's that Josh Bell and Kyle Schwarber, since returning on April 12th, have not really been what's expected. Um, they've been, you know, for all intents and purposes, a lot closer to their 2020 selves than their 2019 selves. The Nationals' bet was that they would revert back to the 2019 version of the broadcast. So um, I, I think it's there. I think there was risk involved in this as well. I think a lot of the moves the Nationals made this offseason, you can you can point to a good amount of risk. It's like that's the you know that's what you do when you sign the ten million dollar out there, not the eighteen million dollar out there. That's what you do when you trade for the first baseman who has two years of team control from a sort of team that's looking to offload. You don't go and get you know the shore shore thing. So um, there's always going to be question marks. And again, kind of like the Strasburg deal too, like we're seeing sort of the bad come early, and either that balances out all averages or that continues, and you're in a, you're in a yeah, with the offseason, it's been interesting to me. So you, of course, have the Nats, and they profile as this classic win-now team. You know, older team, the likes of Max Scherzer in the final season of his contract. You know, Steven Strasburg resigned to a big-money contract, etc. And yet the Nats seemingly did not make much in the way of win-now moves. In an offseason in which the likes of George Springer, JT Realmuto, Trevor Bauer were all out there, the Nats, as far as we can tell, weren't real serious players for any of those guys, and they opted to do a lot on the relative cheap. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. I mean, the learners do spend a lot of money on payroll, and that's their top 10 in payroll basically every season. But I'm just curious, were you surprised that the Nats, again, a win-now team, didn't try to do more win-now stuff this past offseason? Because it kind of feels like they set themselves up. I know I've had this concern of, you know, they're going to be like in that middle of the pack territory, you know, 82 to 85 wins where you're not bad enough to end up getting a high draft pick but you're not good enough to really do anything of consequence. Yeah, I, so I have <laughs> – it's funny. I mean, I've been thinking about this a lot, and it's because when you get into the first month of the year, it, it becomes a good time to assess the offseason, right, because you actually have some data points, and you can start to sort of unpack it more. And um, a rabbit hole, I'm going to take you down. But the way I look at it is, is this team does invest in talent a lot more than other teams. But what, it, what, it, what has happened with the Nationals, and this is a mix of – trading away a lot of prospects for, you know, win-now type moves, but also maybe not having as strong a player development as you would like or drafting, however you sort of see that. They've gotten in this position where they have a lot of holes to fill all the time, and their their method is to fill them. Now, there are some teams that may have said, you know what, we're going to let Andrew Stevenson play left field, or we're going to go sign J.T. Ramuto. So by doing that, we're going to get like the best guy, and that's it's not you know it's not quite the math doesn't quite work out. But let's just stick with me. Like by doing that, we're going to say okay, maybe that guy develops into a left fielder. But we're going to get really good at that position behind the plate, like really good, as good as you possibly can, right? We all move The Nats they often fill every single spot with a major league ready player. They don't take a lot of risks with their roster. But that's part of the win now formula, right? It's not necessarily taking the big swing. It's not going way over the luxury tax threshold to get Trevor Bauer at the last minute like the Dodgers did. But it is a certain kind of team building that where Mike Rizzo, if you listen to him before every season, he's shooting for 90 wins. So what the Nationals do is, maybe don't give themselves that high of a ceiling, but they give themselves a pretty high floor. And to do that, 
You need to make a lot of signings every offseason if you're not bringing up the players for the system to replace guys at catcher, at, you know, at utility infielder, in left field, um, in the back end of the bullpen. So there's a lot of moves that get made that don't necessarily, like, scream, you know, we're trying to win the championship right now. What the Nationals have done for a decade now has developed enough stars, Bryce Harper, Anthony Rendon, Juan Soto, um, spent really big on their rotation, as we know currently, with Scherzer, Strasburg, and Corbin, and then otherwise put teams around them that made it hard to really fail, right? Even this stretch right now that they're in, like they're 8-11, they just went 3-2 and two without Juan Soto, Steven Strasburg, whoever else. It kind of shows, like, the formula is not always to just be, like, the best team ever. It's just to really not ever be a bad team and then see what happens. And then sometimes you get into the, world, the playoffs, your arms get hot, and you win a World Series, right? But I don't think the method is ever – was ever going to be go out and get Springer or Real Muto this offseason. It was going to be a use that $32 million cushion that you had before your spending ceiling, which for the CBT number is around $200 million right now. Their, their year-to-date is a lot less than that, but, but they spend around $200 million with the CBT. They were going to use that money to fill everything. And maybe the most surprising move of that format is Brad Ham, because right, it's a $10 million closer. It's a lot more money than a lot of teams will give for – one season of a, rel- of, a, of a reliever. But other than that, you know, it's like it was pretty by the book. You know, backup catcher or starter, utility infielder, left fielder, done. Like, that was it. You know, they, they, they did it. And then they had Brad Hand because they needed a lefty up to do it. Also, they did spend on that, so I give them credit. But most of it was just, again, giving themselves a high floor, giving a good enough veteran team where you're not going to stumble ever and you're going to hope your stars can carry you past them. That's how I see yeah, no, I think that makes sense. I, I think at some point, though, they do have to deal with the farm system, which doesn't seem to be in great shape anymore. And they don't produce arms. I mean, like, to me, one of the most telling things of this season so far is they need a spot starter, and they go to a guy in his age 34 season in Paolo Espino. I mean, all due respect to Paolo Espino, but it's like, <laughs> that doesn't speak well for what you have in the system when that's the guy you got to go to. And I know there were sort of some extenuating circumstances with that, but... Uh, that, yeah, that really stood out. I want to get your take on Victor Robles. I know there's been a lot to his season so far, including some major base running blunders, but are you surprised at how quickly Davey Martinez pulled the plug on Robles as a leadoff batter? I mean, we heard about this all during spring training, right? Robles is going to be the number one batter. He has a very good exhibition season. And then it felt like five minutes into the regular season, you know, instead of batting first, he's batting at first behind the pitcher and now more recently in the eighth spot. And that's when he starts because he didn't even start this past Saturday. What do you make of what's happened with Robles so far? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it kind of, to me, fits a little bit into what I was saying earlier about the win now and sort of the sort of propensity to always be above average. Like the Nationals don't wait a lot. You know, they're not, they're not that patient. I think that's very clear here, right? Like, young player, trying to move up the rotation, or in the lineup, rather, sorry, trying to get a bigger role offensively. They see some signs that it's not going great. Like, they're not a team that's going to say, well, you know what, take a month, take two months and figure it out. Like, they just, they pull the plug on that stuff. And I think in some ways, like, that's beneficial because it just sort of like, I mean, not to be cliche or, baby on this, but like it kind of fits the one and all mentality, right? Like putting the best team out there every day to win rather than like letting a young guy like take his lumps. But then there's other times when like it, 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 it's not great. Like I'll use like sort of a very front of mind example. Like we're seeing Austin Adams, a reliever, get like significant outs for the Padres right now. And like that's a guy who the Nationals like didn't really give much of a chance, right? He kind of like came up, wasn't great, went back down, see ya. Like and it's not exactly the Robles case who was a top prospect and 
is still obviously in the starting lineup most days. But I do think, like, in that process of winning now, Carter Cuban's another guy. In that process of winning now all the time, not a lot of wiggle room to, like, to, like, to, like, trial and error. There's, like, a lot of, like, we want, you know, as much assurance as possible that the team we put out there every day, and the lineup we put out there every day, will be the best version for that day, not it will help us achieve the best version two months from now, which you could argue if you let Robles just, you know, you know, stumble whatever it is for two months, maybe in July, August, he's a good leader, right? You can get, figure it out. So I'm a bit surprised. I, I, I guess if I were the manager, which I hate saying, I probably would have given him a longer leash, but like, I think it does fit within the organizational philosophy of like trying to always just, you know, win, win, not necessarily, you know, um, let guys sort of linger and in spots that maybe they're not ready for, um, for the sake of being ready. Final question, and I appreciate your time. If the season doesn't go well, and that's an if, it's still so early, but if this ends up being one of those Nats teams that doesn't fire, you know, a la 2013, 2015, 2018, do you think that the Nats will trade Max Scherzer with him in his contract season and the team in need of replenishing the farm system? We, we know Mike Rizzo had a deal on the table with Houston for Bryce Harper in the summer of 2018. The trade got nixed by the learners. What do you think would happen with Max this summer? Were the Nats to continue to kind of be, you know, in this mediocre range or even, you know, less than mediocre type range? Oh, my Twitter mentions just calm down. <laughs> I don't need this today. Yeah. Um, no, I, I, I think my answer is, is that it's complicated, one, from a contractual standpoint. Max can veto any trade and obviously is, is costs a lot of money for a team taking him on. So it would have to be like a big spending team to want to do that. And generally those big spending teams have a rotation because that's what they spent on to some degree, right? Like they're not looking for, you know, to take on a massive contract in, in you know, July. And then um, it's also complicated because obviously Max Scherzer is likely going to go to the Hall of Fame as a national he could get 3,000 strikeouts if he stays for another season there's there's a lot of respect there I think if he pitches well he's obviously pitching well right now there's going to be a want to keep him potentially and I think that giving yourselves the, that exclusive negotiating window from you know July to the end of October when free agency starts is is important I mean we saw the nationals that's when they approached Bryce with the 10-year, $300 million deal with a lot of deferred money that ultimately he turned down, right? Like, it was in that window. It was late September. No other team at that point could legally discuss a contract with Bryce, so the Nationals used that opportunity to try and do so. So I do think, like, if you get to the point where, like, you're, like, you know, 10 out or whatever it is in, in late July, but Max is a Sion contender, yes, that's when you start to maybe rebuild some of your system, you know, get some prospects in here. Um, everyone points to the Eraldis Chapman thing where the Yankees traded into the Cubs and then signed him back, right? Like, you know, that, that can, that can happen. But I do think there's complications there because of that. not only the history of Max, which is weighty and sort of was similar to what happened with Bryce where they didn't pull the trigger on a deal that would have really upset the fan base and really kind of shaped the whole system here. I also think there's complications because of the future, right? Like he's not definitely going to leave. So, you know, they, would they trade him? I, if I had to like, cap it, I'd, I'd probably you know lean no, I, even if in a bad year. But I, I, I think it's something they should entertain should it come to that because, like we talked about, there's obviously a Darth of young talent that, that could help you filled, and um, it could help you sort of start to see what your team looks like on the other side of this this window of you know this current group that um, is getting older, is on some expiring deals. And um, you're going to have to pivot at some point. It could be a good start for that. But it would be a painful one, of course, for the fan base and the team, so I'm not sure.
Yeah, no doubt. Uh, really great insight. Love reading your stuff. Nationals insider Jesse Doherty of the Washington Post. All the best, Jesse. Thanks so much, man. Of course, man. Thank you. Of all the teams that have bullied the Orioles over the last few seasons, 47 and 115 in 2018, 54 and 108 in 2019, 25 and 35 in 2020, no team has bullied the Orioles more than the New York Yankees. And so when a bully happens to be reeling, when a bully happens to be having his or her own problems, there's nothing wrong with kicking the bully while the bully is down. And on Monday night, the Orioles kicked the bully while the bully was down. A 4-2 win over the Yankees at Oriole Park at Camden Yards in game one of a four-game series. The Orioles improved to 10-12 and so far this season. The Yankees fall to 9-13. and They are last in the American League East, Joe Angel, if you would please. And the Orioles again in the win column. Yes, they are. And there were some things to really like from an Orioles perspective on Monday night. I mean, as I keep saying to myself, and as I've said on this podcast, every time the Orioles win, I don't know the next time that this will happen. So if you're a nose fan, you might as well revel in it while you got it. But Matt Harvey was terrific on Monday night. How about the dark night? On Monday night, one run in six innings. Matt Harvey, the number two starter in the Orioles rotation, a guy who is here, as I have said, to be fixed and then to be flipped, has been a really encouraging bright spot for the Orioles so far. I mean, I don't want to overstate things. He's got an ERA of 426 over five stars, but I think he's been a lot better than most people thought he would have been. I know he's been better than I would have thought he would have been when the Orioles signed him to a minor league contract a few months ago. But one run in six innings on Monday night, five strikeouts versus three hits, two doubles into single, and three walks on 84 pitches. He tossed five scoreless innings to begin the game, did give up a run in the top of the six, leadoff walk of Clint Frazier, and then back-to-back two-out doubles by John Carlos Stanton and Aaron Judge. And the Judge double was disappointing because Harvey had Judge down 0-2. The double came on an 0-2 pitch. But still, Harvey was very effective. Um, and all things considered, I mean, given where this guy has been over the last few years, which has been a complete mess, uh, you'll take this. Like, you can work with this, a 4.26 ERA over five starts so far this season. So really nice job by Matt Harvey against one of the more imposing lineups in Major League Baseball. Also standing out on Monday night was Cedric Mullins. I mean, this guy's start to this season, you can't overstate how great the start has been. Starting center fielder, number one batter for the Orioles. He comes through to the tune of two home runs and a double on Monday night. Cedric Mullins finished with 10 total bases on Monday night. He had a leadoff homer in the bottom of the first. He had a first pitch leadoff double in the bottom of the fifth, and he had a leadoff homer in the bottom of the seventh inning. The guy had one leadoff hit after another on Monday night. It's not often the leadoff batter leads off more than one inning. Uh, Mullins did it a bunch of times on Monday night, and he delivered. And so Cedric Mullins, as we speak on this Tuesday, how about this? He has a batting average so far this season of 365, and on base percentage so far this season of 419, and a slugging percentage so far this season of 576. He's been awesome so far this year, and perhaps never better than he was on Monday night. Also, big defensive play for the Orioles on Monday night, with a little help from the timing of things, shall we say. So the left fielder, Austin Hayes, had a huge outfield assist in the top of the eighth, threw out Aaron Judge at third base for the third out right before, as in like a split second before, DJ LeMahieu crossed home plate 
on a two-out bases-loaded ribby single by Gio Urshela, as opposed to a two-run single by Gio Urshela off Cesar Valdez to trim the Orioles' lead to 4-2 instead of 4-3. It was amazing how this ended up playing out. Boneheaded base-running blunder by Judge. You know, I almost thought I was watching the Nationals in that moment. Yes, thank you very much. That was Nationals-esque, what Aaron Judge did getting thrown out at third base there. The Yankees manager, Aaron Boone, ended up getting ejected by the first base umpire, Greg Gibson, for arguing that LeMay Hughes scored before Judge was tagged at, or at the very least for arguing that he couldn't, talking about Boone, challenge the play. Uh, apparently, it was too late for Boone to challenge the play. I mean, bottom line, Boone should have just challenged the play right away, uh, but did not. And the Yankees, you know, I, I think the right call was made, but it was close. That is true. So instead of 4-3, it's 4-2. Orioles do end up holding on uh, for the victory. Also in the game was another potential injury here for the Orioles. Freddie Galvis, the starting shortstop. Uh, so we had a big hit on Monday night. A first pitch, two out, ribby double in the bottom of the second, but left the game with left adductor soreness. Orioles already have Anthony Santander, one of their better hitters on the 10-day injured list. And Galvis perhaps will be joining Santander. We'll see. Uh, also, the Orioles on Monday did send back down that lefty pitcher, Zach Louther, who I talked about on Monday's podcast. The O's recalled Louther from the alternate training site at Double A Bowie on Sunday as a corresponding roster move to designating pitcher Wade LeBlanc for assignment. Louther made his major league debut in that victory for the Orioles 8-1 over the Oakland A's at Camden Yards on Sunday afternoon, tossed a scoreless top of the ninth, including striking out Matt Chapman for the final out, but Lowther now back to the alternate training site. You're going to see this. The Orioles are going to shuffle guys up and down throughout the year, but Zach Lowther is a guy worth keeping track of. Number 11 prospect uh, for the Orioles per MLB pipeline. But in the meantime, the Orioles are ahead of the Yankees uh, when it comes to the American League standings. Game two, O's Yanks Tuesday night at 7.05. Bruce Zimmerman versus Corey Kluber. All right, that will do it for you and me. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. On Wednesday's podcast, special guest, Washington football team insider, Nikki Javala of the Washington Post as we continue to prepare for the NFL draft. Also, we on Tuesday night have the Capitals looking for a three-game sweep of Trotsy and the New York Islanders in this stretch of three consecutive games for the two teams against each other. And the game taking place at Capital One Arena, where we will have fans for the first time at a Caps game this season. Also on Tuesday night, Max Scherzer pitches Nationals versus the Toronto Blue Jays in Dunedin, Florida in game one of a two-game series. So we'll have lots to get into on Wednesday's podcast. I'll talk to you then. Have a great rest of your Tuesday. Oh, that was Landon. You know, um, again, you know, our plan for Landon is to have him here, have him compete, and have him be a part of what we're doing going forward. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, the trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance.
Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.